and we should be good to go when we are. <clears throat> oh, shit. All right, the temporomandibular joint. Obviously, its name tells you what? What bones does it involve? <laughs> Temporal bone and mandible, right? Did you notice that in uh, the muscles in the test? If you, you kind of thought about it, the name kind of tells you when it comes to a lot of these muscles, where they are, what they attach to, that kind of stuff. It's uh, kind of a general rule you should keep when you think about studying this material. So the TMJ joint, or the temporal mandibular joint, Great. Okay, it's this guy here. So we're talking about, do you remember the, uh, what was that called? Conjular process. That is the conjular process, right? Remember I said that the conjular process represents the articulating part of the mandible and the temporal bone. So we're talking about that particular, the conjular component, the head, the articulation between the head of the, uh, of the mandible of the conjular part of the mandible, and then this, there's an indentation as part of the, of the temporal bone. So, it is what's considered to be a modified hinge. It depresses, opening the mouth, it elevates, closes, it sticks forward in protraction, it pulls back with retraction, and it does do lateral movements side to side. So if it were strictly a hinge joint, it couldn't do side to side, right? The thing we're gonna discover with the TMJ joint is there is a spin that occurs here on opening and closing, but there's also a slide and a glide to it at the same time. So it is between the temporal fossa of the mandible and the articular tubercle, the temporal bone, and a disc. So we have a concave fossa of the mandible, we have a convex part of the conjular part of the, uh, of the mandible itself, sorry, uh, and then we have the articular disc in between the two. I think I've told you in the past, it's a very poor joint. And from from perspective of um, of congruency, it's not that congruent to turn. So we can see it here at the top. Number one, kind of oh, gotta get the battery. Number one points to this area here uh, where the joint lies. You sort of see it here as well. The disc has been removed, but you can see that at the zygomatic process here of of the temporal bone, there's this concavity here and then a convexity. So it's almost like a nest along these, uh, see here's your, uh, here's your suture between the, between the uh, zygomatic bone and the temporal bone, so it's obviously farther behind. This joint lies just anterior to the uh, internal auditory meatus and uh, anterior also to the mastoid process, and it fits in like so. So the temporal fossa is bordered by the articular tubercle anteriorly and the postglenoid process posteriorly. So it's a kind of an area there. Posterior to the postglenoid process is found the internal auditory meatus. So it gives you a sense of where it is in terms of you think of where your the hole is for your ear. The temporal mandibular joint is just anterior to that. The fibrous capsule it is it is a synovial joint, so therefore it has a fibrous capsule like all synovial joints do. Uh, attaches to the margins of the articular area of the temporal bone and all the way down and around the neck of the mandible. So if we look at a mandible,
and we look at this articular process here. Oh, let me know it's on. Anyways, you've got the conjugate process here, and it narrows down into a neck. If we put it together, like so, what we're saying is that this whole joint is surrounded by an our fibrous capsule. It goes down past the conjugate process, and, and it sort of tightens in around at the neck, which would be inferior to the conjugate process itself. Okay? It's also loose. Why, why loose? So Range of motion. So the idea is that uh, if you take capsule, then we would prevent movement. So you want loose capsule so that you the joint can go to its big range of motion. Uh, we do have capsular patterns in the body where uh, the capsule, when it's injured or, or chronically upset, it will tighten in a particular way. But that's for another cost. But it is loose, which allows for this this full range of motion. So we see it here. So if I go back to um, the articular tubercle anteriorly and the postglenoid process posteriorly, they are here. Okay, there's the postglenoid tubercle right there. Here's the internal auditory meatus, so your ear hole of the temporal bone. Here's the postglenoid tubercle, and then we have this articular eminence here. And when the mouth is closed, you can see that the glenoid, sorry, the, um, the uh, conjugate process of the mandible fits right into this concavity in the closed mouth. We also see the capsular ligament here. So this, whenever you see a picture like this, you're actually kind of looking at the, at the fibrous capsule as it surrounds. So we can see that this whole area, all the way down below the conjular head into the neck, that the capsule surrounds the whole thing. Of course, this is looking with a, uh, it's a lateral view from inside the jaw surface of the, of the mandible itself. Now, it gets a little bit interesting this year because it has two synovial membranes which line the fibrous capsule. It has a superior and inferior synovial membrane. The superior synovial membrane lines the fibrous capsule above the disc and the inferior capsule lines, fibrous lines below the disc. So we see here that we have this, this gray area represents the disc. So we have a superior articular surface here and an inferior articular surface here. In other words, the two never touch. No. The disc is always in between the two bones, between the part of the temple bone and, and part of the, uh, um, the mandible itself. So the disc divides the articular cavity into two separate joint spaces. When we protrude and retrude, we are using the superior compartment. What kind of movement do you think occurs on protrusion and retrusion? Would it be a, slant, a spin or a slide glide? Why would you say that? And I'm not saying you're wrong. So if we look at the joint in this relationship, like so, and we say we want to protrude and retrude, we are actually sliding and gliding, okay? So we're saying that that superior part of the capsule slides and glides when we protrude and retrude. 
Elevation and depression occur at the inferior compartment, which is more of a spin type of thing. Right? So we've got elevation depression is the spin, protrusion and retrusion is the glide. Okay? So the articular capsule thickens laterally to form the lateral ligament, which is therefore intrinsic, meaning what? If it's an intrinsic ligament, it means it's part of the capsule. Okay? The lateral ligament along with the postglenoid tubercle prevent posterior dislocation. So if we look here in the diagram, actually let's go back to the other one. You see here, between that ligament and between the postglenoid tubercle, this jaw can't go any further back than this point. It kind of breaks it. It's like a wall fork. But saying it prevents it from coming this direction. In fact, it's strong enough that if you took a shot uh, hard enough, it, the, the jaw would likely break before it ever slipped back into this area because it actually holds it quite well. Um, so we say the lateral ligament then, along with the postglenoid tubercle, prevent posterior location. So we see here the upper compartment, which is the slide and glide component, protrusion, retrusion, and then elevation depression is the lower compartment or the lower uh, 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 space, uh, the articular space. And then in between the two, we have the articular disc or meniscus. It uh, goes by either name, it doesn't matter. And what does a meniscus do? Or a disc? What did I say it does? Sorry? Yes, it takes an incongruent joint and makes it more congruent. In other words, it stabilizes it better. So when we look here uh, in, in the normal position, we see on the left, here on the left, with the mouth closed, you see the normal position. So, uh, so the structures that make it possible to open and close your mouth include the bones, joints, and muscles in that area. When we go into normal opening, what happened to the disc? Because we know that the mandible is going to move, it's going to spin, and in a moment I'm going to teach it to you, tell you that it glides at the same time. Uh, what happened to the disc between the picture on the left and the one in the middle, normal? Did the disc move? Did it move? What way did it move if it moved? But did it move? Did it move posterior, anterior? Anterior. Right, it came anterior. Look at the configuration between the coronoid process of the mandible and the prominence at, uh, at the inferior part of what we'll call the zygomatic arch where the two bones are there. Would you say that that's a convexity on top of a convexity if we remove the disc? Yes. Is that stable? No. So if you remember your attachments for uh, lateral pterygoid, where there are some fibers as part of the attachment that attach to the disc. Remember. Yes. Okay. Lateral pterygoid is an opener. So when lateral pterygoid pulls on the coronoid process of the mandible, 
because part of its fiber is also attached to the disc, not only does it pull that part forward, thus opening the mouth, it also pulls the disc along at the same time so that this incongruent joint becomes more congruent. So when we look here in the normal clothes, we see the contular process of the mandible, the convec convexity, fitting nicely into the concavity here of, of the temporal bone. On opening, we spin and glide at the same time. In other words, the contular process comes anteriorly. If the disc doesn't come with it, then you have an incongruent joint. So the body has placed a disc here in order to maintain congruency on opening. But how many people here have a click and pop when they open and close their mouths? That's your disc. So what's happening, let's say that lateral pterygoid is tight, like really tight and short. What's gonna happen to that disc position? Yeah, even when the mouth is closed. How many of you guys have a click on opening and how many of you guys have a click on closing? Opening or closing? Opening. On opening. What happened is your lateral pterygoid's got the disc forward. That click on opening is you're starting to rotate here and then as pterygoid continues to contract, you're popping on top of the disc. And along with it taking a little shave off every time. Yeah. Okay. So what do I do? I don don't a glove and I stick my pokey finger in your mouth and I get into that lateral pterygoid and I massage it and try to make it soften like I would any other muscle in the body. I actually had a woman cry once because she hadn't been able to open her mouth in 15 years and when I was done with it, she could open her mouth. So this stuff works. You can really do a lot for your patient in terms of working inside the mouth on these, on these structures. This is why it's so important that you understand that with the prevalence of TMJ issues, uh, we do a lot of treatment or a lot of therapists do a lot of treatment, not all. So what you can see here then on the right is the abnormal disc placement in the mechanics of the jaw opening. You can actually see that lateral pterygoid's tight, so it's already got that disc slightly forward, and it ends up jamming it in, right? And that's where all these clicks and pops come from. So if you have a click and a pop, then there's something wrong in the relationship with the conjular part of the mandible and the disc in normal mechanical function of, the, of especially pterygoid contracting when the mouth opens. Okay, that's generally what tends to happen. And uh, that's why it's so important to, to realize that uh, you know you got a click and a pop and we can get in there and fix it. So why slide and glide? What I'm saying is that under normal circumstances, not only does the jaw spin, but it also slides forward until it gets to gets to here. So we watch, opens and slides. Right. Spins and then slides. What does that allow for? Greater range of motion. Sorry? A greater range of motion. Yeah, so you can take in that Big Mac in a big bite rather than a quarter pounder. Right? Snakes actually dislocate their jaws when they eat. They're actually able to, they have ligaments that allow that jaw to open and pop out so they can take, that's why a small snake can, snake can take a very large prey and swallow it because they're able to basically dislocate their jaw. We're not quite dislocating, but we are. That sliding allows for that greater range of motion so that we have a more functional opening of the mouth to, to do things like eat or whatever. There are two extrinsic ligaments, so remember that we had this intrinsic ligament that was part of the, um, uh, uh, where are we here? Do, 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 do. There we go. The articular capsule thickens laterally, so on the outside, which forms an intrinsic ligament, part of the fibers. There are two extrinsic ligaments, meaning they sit outside the joint but help stabilize the joint. The stylomandibular ligament, what's that tell you? 
I don't even know anybody. What's the title? To the mandible. Right. Yeah. So, the ligament that goes from the stylet crosses to the mandible. It reinforces the uh, uh, the mandible to the cranium so that in, in slide and glide movements, right? I mean, some of these ligaments, if you think about it, if I were an MMA fighter and I give you a hook into the side of the jaw and I make your jaw go over here somewhere, it's ligaments that get affected and also prevent the jaw from actually falling out. But it doesn't really strengthen the joint that much. It more stabilizes the mandible within its mechanical position. The second is the sphenomandibular ligament. So that goes from, let's go from the sphenoid bone to the mandible. So it goes from the spine of the sphenoid to the mandible. It is a passive support of the mandible, and it serves as something called a swinging hinge for the mandible on the opening and closing. So it allows that sort of swinging hinge. That's what we mean is that it's not only just hinging, it's also swinging at the same time, which allows for the range. So we see here, here's the stylomandibular ligament here. And here's the sphenomandibular ligament here. And you can see that if this thing is going to spin and move anteriorly in the opening mouth and opposite closing, you can see how this sort of suspends the mandible in a good position along with the muscles to hold it in the appropriate spot so that it swings and hinges at the same time. So the articular disc is convo, concave, convex on the superior portion. What's that mean? Yeah, there's an S term. So we have a concavo-convex on the top part. Why? Yeah, so initially, when the mouth is closed, remember that we have... Zygomatic arch does this, right? Okay. So this allows for, if I move it just a little bit anteriorly here, kind of goes like so. Right, kind of fits it in the closed mouth position, right? And then we say that um, the articulate distance is concave or convex on the superior portion, and the inferior surface is concave. So if we take it and we go like this, it's like that. So what sits here? The condylar head of the mandible sits there. Okay, so what the disc is trying to do, saying as long as the disc is in this area here, it's a nice fit, and this is gonna slide along to make a better congruent fit as, as this thing spins and slides forward. As the mouth opens, the condylar process of the mandible moves anteriorly placing the convex process of the mandible in contact with the convex articular eminence of the temporal bone. Not a very strong thing. You've got convexity on convexity, right? It's like trying to put a marble on a table. It's not going to work. It must be remembered that at no time do the condyle, the mandible, nor the articular eminence of the temporal bone make contact with each other. So if this thing is functioning right and there's no major issues, the disc always lies between the two bony structures obviously ensuring a congruency, but also preventing them from kind of grinding against each other. The outer surfaces of the disc are attached to the capsule, so it makes, helps it sort of sit in quite nicely. And remember that uh, when we looked at the attachments for lateral pterygoid, right, if lateral pterygoid's here, all right, we've got some fibers of that muscle that attach to that disc, and then also, to the to the to the coronoid process down here, so that when 
it's getting pulled, it's also pulling the disc along with it at the same time. <clears throat> so we see here quite nicely in this diagram, here are the disc attachments here with ligaments. We have the mandibular fossa here that the condylar head kind of fits in, but remember they don't touch because the disc is in the way. And then we have the articular eminence here, anteriorly, and then the, the, the articular disc then covers the concavity, if we compare it to the zygomatic arch, the concavity and the convexity of it. You can see here nicely how lateral pterygoid has fibers that attach to that disc. So when this puppy gets pulled, the disc comes anteriorly as well. So we see here then, that under normal circumstances it sits here. Abnormally, the disc can either get shoved behind that condylar place or ahead. And it all depends on the mechanics of it. So that's why it's somewhat different if you have a click on opening versus click on closing, it gives you a sense of where it is. So what I'd like you to do now is just partner up and sort of, we're gonna to try to palpate this temporal mandibular joint and have your patient open and close their mouths. So if you think about it, if it's, if it's anterior to the external auditory meatus, then our, our landmarking would be the mastoid process, then we would come underneath the auditory meatus and anterior superiorly up onto the temporal mandibular joint and then have your client open and close their mouths. Okay, go. <laughs> Somebody might feel some, make sure you partner up, please. You can always feel yourself. You gotta feel somebody else. But I really want you to be cognizant of, I want you to feel the, so I want you to feel the spin, and then I want you to feel the glide. The anterior glide is the most open. So you don't, you want to be, you don't want to be palpating the uh, the coronoid. You want to be palpating the condylar process. Yes. Yeah, because it, it you know, because it puts a little more stress on that area. Uh, there's a big relationship between head placement and TMJ issues. Huge. Okay, if you're done, get up, find a different partner, palpate them. Find a different partner to palpate.
you know, so bad his jaw kind of falls around when he's talking, it's, it's, uh, it can be pretty significant. So uh, again, if you've got it and your dentist tells you to wear a splint at night and you go, yeah, whatever, wear the splint. Wear the splint. Actually, there's a whole bunch of new ones coming. Used to be that they used to do a mold and you had that big plastic thing. It's a whole lot different now. They, they make the mold slightly different now. Actually, I should be going to the dental the teachers and talk about it. They, they do yeah. I've had it multiple times. Right, see, I, I want to do a piece of research uh, that says um, yeah, three, three different individuals within the study. One who just gets massage, one who just gets the splint, and one who gets the massage and then fits the splint in the relaxed mouth why would you why would you mold someone in a funky position and then throw a splint in to maintain that funky position? Why not try to get it as normal as possible and then shove a splint in? Makes sense, right? But no one's ever done it. Ah, we're not doing any of this. I've already done this. I just I panicked and grabbed this slide and uh, we've already done all these muscles, so. so I'm just gonna stop this for a minute.